Well, if you would, turn to Jude chapter 1. There is only one, right? Uh, We're journeying through this little book that we've often stated, and I'll say it again. It is undoubtedly the most neglected book in the New Testament, which is crazy. Um, It's... There's a variety of reasons for that, I think, but uh, sadly, it's, it's overlooked. And as we saw, the structure of the book is very well laid out. He loves triplets, so watch that as we go through. His examples, he usually picks three. He talks through that. There is only one place where he'll mention a list of four, not three things, and that's very significant, and we'll get to that later on. But we're in chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. I'm only going to look through verse 10 today. I was planning on doing all the way through 16. I thought, no, it's too much. Uh, And there's several things we need to address today. Jude is going to cite two books. He's going to cite First Enoch, and he's going to cite Assumption of Moses. And if you go, I've never heard of those, that's okay. They're Jewish writings from the intertestament period. They are not part of the Apocrypha. You won't find them in a Roman Catholic Bible. You won't find them in the Eastern Orthodox Bible. So what do you do with this? So we'll get to that because that's one of the questions we have to answer as we move through uh, this book. But it shouldn't surprise us. Jude is a Jew living in the first century in Israel. He's writing to a Jewish audience that are very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures as well as the Jewish writings, the traditions, and he's weaving this together to bring home a message. So it shouldn't surprise us. They're not writing in a vacuum, right? Uh, If you mention, you want to talk about tragedies and so forth, you'd probably refer to 9-11. Immediately, we all know what that means. But someone living in another country might not be familiar with what 9-11 means, but to us it has a great meaning. Or Paul Revere, immediately it conjures up ideas, right? And the same thing happens as Jude is writing to his audience. So let's look at this. Let's look at verse 5. It says, now I desire to remind you, even though you've been fully informed of these facts. So that tells us this group is very well trained. And he's, he's mentioned the apostles passing on tradition once for all, that echoes back to verse 3, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains and utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Yet these men, as a result of their dreams, defile the flesh. Uh, The idea of dreams here is that uh, God often reveals himself through dreams. And so what they're saying is that these false teachers saying, we've tapped into God's revelation. We have a, a special message from God. And he says, instead, they defile the flesh. So it's kind of making fun of them. These dreamers defile the flesh, they reject authority, and insult the glorious ones. He starts off with giving us the diabolic trinity, or trio, uh, as I mentioned. He gives us an example of three groups that he's going to tap into as examples of of what God does with those who are rebellious. Uh, It's what's going to happen to the false teachers. Let's just list them. Give me the the first group that's, that's cited here. Who is it? I'm sorry? Yeah, it's the, the, this is the group from the time of the Exodus, right? 
We'll get to this in a minute. Uh, it's very significant. And what, what happens to some of them? What, what does the text say? Yeah, well, what does the text say? Don't, don't read into other... What does Jude tell us? They didn't what? They did not believe. Did not believe. All right? That's significant. Because we're going to connect this with the false teachers. Who's the second group? We got the group of the Exodus. The angels. This is one of those difficult texts. It's mentioned back in 1 Peter. If I could open up 1 Enoch, I almost brought 1 Enoch today to read to you. There's a whole account. It's an interpretation of Genesis 6. Um, remember the Nephilim, these giants, the sons of God, the sons of the daughters of men have sexual relation and they have offspring that are giants. The Jews believed those were angels that had sexual relationship with human beings. Those angels then were cast into a dark abyss where they wait the eternal judgment. That's not all fallen angels. Um, and you say, ooh, that sounds really crazy. But even Peter talks about they left their abode, and we'll talk about this text a little bit later. Uh, and we mentioned this last time, or when we were studying the Petrine epistles, remember the angels when they were in the demoniac, they said, you know, don't send us into the dark abyss. They're talking about, I believe, these angels that crossed the line, so to speak, back in Genesis 6. And what, again, they left, right, their proper place. We'll just put it that way. All right? So they were rebellious. There's a third group. Almost always in Scripture, when you want to talk about someone who's bad, either if, if it's a woman, you refer to her as Jezebel. Uh, if you're referring to a group of people, you talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And they, too, left their proper place, as the text tells us. So he gives us three examples. Let's unpack these as we look at this. The first of these, uh, we'll just skip right through this, this trio that we have. You just identified them. The first of these is the generation of the Exodus. Notice what he says. I call, verse 5, I desire to remind you, remember is so important in Scripture. Anytime you see that, you need to sit up and take nourishment because the, the author is saying, I want, you need to reflect on this for the purpose of action. It's not just for knowledge's sake. And he mentions that having saved the people out of the land of Egypt... Who saved the land people out of Egypt? Jesus. <laughs> uh, what English version do you have? I have the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone have uh, something other than Jesus? The Lord. The, Lord. Uh, the New American Standard, the NIV, the King James, the New King James all have the Lord. It's what you would expect. Because the Old Testament often talks about the Lord is the one who led the people out of Egypt, right? The Net Bible, the, new, uh, the uh, ESV have Jesus, and I think it's a better rendering. This is very significant. This is worth coming today. So let me just run through why. First of all, we would say the reading is to be preferred as Jesus. The quality and quantity of Greek manuscripts argue it's Jesus. So external evidence is in support of Jesus' rendering. Here's the second. Jesus is the more difficult reading. If there was to be a scribal error, I would expect it to be 
uh, or if, a, if the reading, yeah, I would expect it to be Lord. That it's in, coincides with the Old Testament, right? In fact, if scribes were to change anything, they, they would have done it the other way around. They would have switched Jesus to Lord to make it fit. And then I also mention Jesus' role in the Exodus is not foreign to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians mentions this. So why is this so significant? Why am I making a big to-do of this? Why would the Net Bible, the ESV, change this rendering? Many scholars try to poo-poo the idea that it's Jesus. Why is it so significant? It's on the next page, page 2. What is Jude stating Judas, Jude is stating that Jesus, and notice he uses his earthly name. He doesn't even call him Christ, Moshua. He says, this Jesus existed way before Bethlehem. And he was intimately involved with his people. In other words, Jesus is what? God. It's very significant. There's an atlas that we used to recommend. It's the satellite atlas. Uh, for Israel. It's, it, it's fantastic. The material is great. The fellow who put that together has been in charge of, um, well, it's called IBEX. It's a uh, Bible Institute of sorts in Israel. He's been there for years. He just came out and denied the deity of Christ, saying Christ isn't God. Well, I'll, I'm not going to mention the name, but the, the issue is he, he's saying, I deny Christ. And you're going, as God. And that's not what Jude's saying. In fact, we already saw this going back up to verse 4, denying our master and Lord. Those two Greek terms, despote and uh, kurios, is always used of God Almighty. And he throws it and he says, Jesus is this. Jude is Jesus' half-brother. Remember that? No wonder he says, I'm his servant doesn't highlight that he's brother. This Jesus is Lord. He's God Almighty. That'll blow your mind, right? Thinking through that. And, and, and so when he says, Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the pre-incarnate Christ was involved. You catch this? This is really significant. The deity of Christ is being highlighted. Um, I even used to teach with a fellow who denied that that. that Christ was God prior to his birth. Uh-uh. That's what this text is clearly stating. It's high Christology, the deity and rule of Christ. It's very significant. Questions on this? Again, a lot of English versions have Lord, and you would expect that it complies with numbers, but it doesn't fit with both external and internal evidence. And I think Jesus is a much better rendering. Yes, it's slightly problematic because that's not what we see in the Old Testament. But when we understand who Jesus really is, it makes perfect sense. And what Jude is saying, just as Jesus was involved here, he'll be involved with the false teachers. He's intimately involved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 1, let's create man in our image. Elohim, it... There's scholars who will debate that. I do think it's a reference to the Godhead, but it could be the angelic host as well. But yeah, um, principles glean. Let me, let me walk through this. So, so why is it so significant that we mention the, the, the Exodus? Again, he's giving us three examples. First, 
the Lord is faithful to his covenant. Notice he says the Lord brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He later destroyed those who did not believe. And so in other words, there needs to be faithfulness on the part of the servants. All right. And secondly, failure to walk by faith results in judgment. Uh, the, the event is probably Numbers 14. Remember Numbers 14? That's when God says, I, I'm, he tells Moses, I'm done. We're just going to wipe them all out. We'll start all over. This is not working. Right? Um, we're, we're done. And of course, um, I think part of that was a test for Moses in that whole scene. But th that's the first principles glean. Any questions on this? That's the generation of Exodus. So that's exhibit A. Now he moves to B and he says the angels. And we've talked about this. So I'm not going to go into great detail, but I think it's a reference to Genesis 6. And he says these angels who did not keep within their proper domain. I mean, think about this. They, they've been created for an unbelievable opportunity to serve God Almighty. They are an exalted state. And yet they would forfeit it to fulfill their own desires. Right? You see the connection that he's trying to make here with false teachers. And, and so what are the principles gleaned from the fallen angels? Two. Number one, one status does not exempt one from judgment. Even one of the most glorious angels is going to be judged. Satan. And secondly, a day of judgment awaits all those who fell to glorify him. These false teachers who, remember, they're not outside attacking the church. They are leaders within the church. <laughs> this is a whole different ballgame. And you can see them flaunting their, their role within the church. He says, no, no, no. Didn't, the angels weren't exempt. You're not exempt. doesn't matter. Questions on, on this one, because this is, we've, if you've not been with us, I know this sounds a little crazy, but most Jewish writings in the Intertestament period understood back in Genesis 6, those sons of God to be angels who crossed the domain. You say, well, how in the world does that happen? I don't know. But the Virgin Mary became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. I don't know how that happened either. Okay, There's some mysteries here. But it's the last time it happened in Genesis 6, um, leaving their domain. Questions on it, though? It's a little... Ooh. All right. I know. And here's the third. The third is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I had to stick with my G's, so I put Gomorrah and company. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah are prime examples throughout Jewish and Christian writings of what happens to the unrighteous. Their exhibit A. You know, I mentioned this there in that larger paragraph. It's the last sentence. If you did a little study on Sodom and Gomorrah, they're condemned not just because of their sexual deviance. Uh, many writings talk about their arrogance, their lack of hospitality, and their gluttony or greed. Isn't that interesting? That's what they're condemned for. So, it's not necessarily the sexual immorality, though for Jude, that is exactly the case because he's, he's, he's dovetailing this off of the angels. They left their proper domain. These men left their proper domain, right, which was unnatural. It's not how God intended it. It says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Um, again, we... 
We're not making this one sin greater than another. Uh, the example is fitting what, what he's trying to accomplish here. And, uh, and that's the problem here because this is in a very similar way to the angels. Notice, by the way, the last line, because it's very significant, now displayed as an example of suffering the punishment of what kind of fire? Eternal. Eternal. The judgment is, is ongoing. I don't think Scripture teaches annihilation yeah. after death. But In it's, Revelation, it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever. Yeah, there's smoke That's of the... Yeah, the torment that's going up. And so the principles glean twofold. Let me give them to you. Number one, judgment awaits those who fail to walk in accordance with God's standards. You know, notice what it says in the text here. It says they displayed as an example. Peter uses the same verbiage in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in his writing. They are an example. They're what to be known for, right? Uh, he says that's the, an example. And again, we mentioned the eternal fire. So we see here three examples. And again, this is not foreign to the first century world. On the next page, I give you a whole chart, this sucker. And what I'm trying to show you is these three groups are exhibit A, B, and C of, of not how to live. <laughs> uh, the book of Sirach, 3rd Maccabees, uh, a, a, a scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, this is from the Mishnah, codified law at 250 A.D. and 2 Peter. Isn't that interesting? So this is not foreign. These three groups that you see, we'll find them throughout Jewish writings saying, listen, this is what happens when people do not pursue the things of the Lord. I don't have space for this in the notes, and I should have. It kind of hit me as I was re going over this even this morning. How are these three groups similar? How are they similar? Just thinking through these. What do you see that's, ide that's identical to them? All right. There's rebellion. Unbelief or disbelief? Yeah. What else do we see? How are they similar? No fear of God. Yeah, self-serving. What else? Yeah, they they've become. Um, there there is certainly pride. Uh, we'll do that. They are blessed, aren't they? Remember, Lot wanted the best slice. Where was that? Sodom and Gomorrah. I can take you to Baba Dra today, which is most likely Gomorrah. It's not a place you'd want to live. <laughs> it's, it's just near the Wadi Rum. It's awful. But at the time, I mean, they're exalted, and they were blessed because they were taken out of the land of Egypt out of slavery. So they were all blessed. Turn to Numbers 14.11. This is powerful. 
Numbers 14, 11 says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of the signs that I have done among them. I've done so much for them. They were in the, in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ and all His glory. Right? The angels. We just saw the text related to them and Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, how blessed can you be? We'll come back to that because keep that in mind of the false teachers. Because, in fact, look what happens in, in verse 8. He gives this summary. After he gets done giving these three examples, he comes back to the false teachers that he was dealing with in verse 4. And he gives three descriptors. Now, remember in verse 4... He said, they are subtle men, these false teachers. They're condemned long ago. They're godless and they are immoral and they are deniers of Jesus. Now notice what he says here in verse 8 of the false teachers. They're immoral, they're rebellious, and they're slanders. Sound familiar? See the connection that we've got going on here? He said, this is the problem. They're immoral. The, the word literally is pollution. They're polluted. Uh, De Silva, in his work on honor and kinship and purity, says pollution was a label attached to whatever is out of place <clears throat> in regard to the society's view of orderly and safe world. In the first century world, you knew your place, and to step outside of it was to be taboo. We don't recognize that as much living in the United States at this time frame, but in that culture... This, it's kind of maybe like the caste system in India. This is where you're placed by whatever, live accordingly. And that was the idea in the Greco-Roman world. And so to, to move outside of your domain was extremely offensive, uh, especially when you have a patron who is caring for you like God, right? That's the idea. And so that's what De Silva's trying to highlight. They're rebellious, they're unwilling, and they are slanders of even those who represent God. See this connection? This is powerful. We, we come back to verse 4. We see it here, but you highlighted it here as well. And that's why the connections are being made. Questions, comments? I don't want to go too fast. This is exciting stuff. Yeah, Ron. <clears throat> Staying in your lane. Yeah, it reminded of that commercial, that guy's doing the tattoo. Have you seen that? Yeah, stay in your lane, bro. Stay in your lane. Yeah, <clears throat> that's the idea. Stay in your lane. <clears throat> God has placed you. And you know what? <clears throat> the next example might seem rather odd to us, but it's showing us staying in the lane. Let's look at this. Verse 9. But even when Michael the archangel... He's very powerful. He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's mentioned in the book of Revelation, right? This guy, he's... By the way, it's a side note. Every angel mentioned in Scripture is a male. But anyway, uh, yeah, when you see pictures of angels, they're always women. I don't know why, because they're all, all men in Scripture. Michael the archangel was arguing with the devil, who is the great slanderer through Scripture, Right? And debating with him concerning Moses' body. You go, whoa, 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 where's that from? Yeah, you won't find that in the Hebrew Scriptures. You won't find that in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Assumption of Moses, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All right. 
He did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment, but said, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. But these men do not understand the things they slander, and they're being destroyed by the very things that, like irrational animals, they instinctively comprehend. That imagery is always used of sexual immorality. They just have this great insatiable greed to fulfill their own lust. And as a result, it's destroying them. The example of, of Michael, is, uh, the archangel, is very significant. But what, because what is happening is God understands. This is the, the, the assumption of Moses gives us a story of Michael the archangel taking Moses' body up to heaven after he has died. And Satan comes along, and most scholars are arguing what Satan is saying is, you know, Moses really doesn't deserve to be in heaven. After all, he killed an Egyptian and hid his body. That was awful. So he really should. And so Moses is attacking. This is not a foreign idea in Scripture. Turn to Zechariah. I want you to see a text. I know, this is, this is tough going. This is stuff we're not used to reading. Man, maybe this is why Judas not studied. Um, but it's Scripture. And there's something very significant here. Turn to Zechariah. If you get to Malachi, you went too far. Uh, so just flip back one to, to Zechariah chapter 3. Bear with us. This is significant. It says, Next I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? And so you see an account of a high priest where the angel of the Lord is taking his soul up to heaven and Satan is trying to attack. The Lord promised each one of us who have placed our faith in Christ, nothing will snatch you from his hand. You are his. And Satan would love nothing more to destroy you now as well as to prevent you to get to heaven in the future. And God has ensured there's a safe passage. <laughs> You're his. Nothing is going to snatch it. And, and, and I don't know about you, but we've all had, most of us have had a past to where there's things you'd like to never resurface. And Moses killing the Egyptian and hiding the body wasn't too cool. And, and Mo, Satan is trying to capitalize on that. Say, ah, Moses doesn't deserve to be in heaven. No, no, no. He's placed his faith in the Lord, and Michael's assuring it. In this process, Michael does what these people failed to do, and that is Michael says, no, it's not my role to judge. God judges. He knows his proper place in God's paradigm. You catch that? It's very significant. Yes. Most likely, there is ranking with angels. We know that. Scripture tells us. So there's, there's, I don't know. Michael plays a key role in Revelation as well. So yes. Uh, the issue, though, is that Michael's careful not to, to judge. Because notice the text says, may the Lord rebuke you. May the Lord judge you. I'm not, I, that's not my role. That's the Father's role, the Lord's role. And so that's what we see here going on. 
Uh, and again, I've given you a couple sources that you can look at. Uh, questions on this? Because this is, this is key. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think the takeaway with Moses is God has forgiven Moses. We're reading the white space. It's not there in the text, but that is key. Remember, Moses got in trouble with his wife as well. Remember that whole scene? That's a whole... I heard a sermon just on that text. That's, that's something. <laughs> that whole scene is amazing too. You know, that's the beauty of Scripture. It doesn't paint these guys as rose-colored glasses, right? David was flawed. Moses was flawed, and yet God used them. And God is willing to forgive, and that's what you see happen here as Moses is ushered into the presence of the Lord, right? That, that, that's comforting, but that was a side note. The, the issue here, though, is that Michael didn't do what they did. Even Michael the Ark, he knows. And that, that's what he says here. These men don't understand these things. So why would they be slandering? Because they're the offspring of Satan. Right? They're doing what they're not supposed to do. Yeah. Well, blaspheme and slander here really fall hand in hand. But you're right. Um, the accusation is that you're slandering God's people as well. But it is blasphemy at the end of the day because you're, you're self-serving rather than serving God, giving Him glory. And, and that's what Michael's careful to do is to give God glory, unlike the false teachers, unlike the three amigos that we see on the board one of the questions that's often asked by individuals when I teach through Jude is, okay, how do you reconcile Jude's use of first Enoch, which we're going to see next time we meet as well, and the assumption of Moses? Both books not included in any canon that we know of, not in a Jewish canon, not in a, any sect within Christendom. So how do you reconcile this? I'm going to give you, there's three points at the top of page four. The first of all is Jude never cites these books of Scripture. Careful. He never says this is part of the canon. And there is a way that New Testament writers do that. They'll use a Greek term, graphe, referring to it as the writing, or they'll say, and the Lord says, and they'll cite from the Old Testament. There's none of these formulas, or it is written. Matthew loves that line, right? It is written. He uses it 14 I think, four, well, no, that's not me. Seven times in the first chapter, it is written, it is written. Um, and he's referring to the Old Testament. There's none of that going on here. Secondly, citing an event does not indicate that Jude believes these books, the Assumption of Moses or First Enoch, is inspired or true. Jude is not the only one who cites secondary literature outside of Scripture. Yes, I've got three references. First is Acts 17. He quotes a philosopher. First Corinthians, he quotes another philosopher. In Titus 1, he quotes a philosopher. 
Titus 1, he says, uh, the Cretans are lazy liars. And that's a text to think through. That is not politically correct. <clears throat> right? He labels a whole people group. He says they're lazy liars, gluttons. Avoid them. Careful. And, and so, and, and in all three of those cases, surely Paul wouldn't understand those philosophers to be inspired. Right? Uh, completely accurate. And that's the argument here is just because he cites two events that common sources share does not mean that Assumption of Moses or First Enoch are historically accurate. Then uh, the third, uh, some scholars argue that the information could have even stemmed earlier than the Assumption of Moses, which I think is the case. It's been passed on through tradition, Jewish tradition, or Jude could be referencing material that's familiar to his audience with no indication of their truthfulness. In other words, that Michael argued over the body of Moses didn't, maybe didn't even occur. Now, that I don't buy because he's assuming that it's accurate by recounting the story. So there's ways to explain the use of this without saying, well, why aren't they included in the canon? Well, why weren't the philosophers included in the canon? Uh, we, we just can't go there. Questions on that? That's a biggie. You, you think about it. You, we, we can continue to wrestle with that. One of the things that we're going to ask over the summer is we're going to look at canonicity. Why is Jude included and not First Enoch? Because these are questions we have to wrestle with. Why 66 books? Well, let me just review our principles and we'll wrap it up. The Lord is faithful, isn't he? He's faithful to Moses. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to us. And failure to walk by faith then has consequences. We are not God. And that's what Michael's trying to remind us, right? <laughs> Even the great archangel who's powerful says, no, I'm not God. That's God's role. Our status does not exempt one from judgment. A day of judgment awaits all those who glorify Him, and judgment awaits all those who fail to walk in accordance with God. John Owen, I love this statement there in the middle of your notes. The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. In other words, you keep on sinning, it becomes rather normal. And it says, the course of the world takes away the shame of it. Instead, we have now parades, and that's where we are, right? So uh, this text is powerful in a sense of the takeaway. I think, bottom line, we are not God. He deserves our glory, our praise. Father, this is a difficult text, and there are so many nuggets in here and things to wrestle with and things to think about. A lot of names, events that we just are so foreign to us. But may we not lose sight of the, the bottom line principle, and that is, Lord, you are God and not us. Help us to live lives that are in accordance with your will, your desire, your plan. And thank you that you are faithful and a forgiving and gracious God who loves us dearly. And we don't have to worry that when we are on our deathbed, what's going to happen Will we make it to heaven in your presence? No, <laughs> you've already promised. In fact, you gave the Holy Spirit as a down payment to ensure that we are yours. For whom you called, you will see glorified. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.